Good morning. We are back in Leviticus today, and we're going to be in Leviticus 11 through 15. Just a little, just a little warning. These are some of the more difficult chapters of Scripture to read. They are laws and case laws about cleanness and uncleanness, things that are very foreign to us. Um, but before we really dive into those, we're going to recap where we've been so far. The book of Leviticus starts with the tabernacle having been finished and the glory of the Lord having come and filled the tabernacle. But at the end of Exodus, Moses can't enter the tabernacle. No one can. So Leviticus chapter 1 starts with the Lord speaking out of the tent and revealing this system of sacrifices. Um, and there are five sacrifices that he mentions. There's the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, and then the sin and guilt offering. And if you remember when I preached this last year, there was those sacrifices can be thought of as costly, bloody, and substitutionary. So we have the means of drawing near to God. Then in Leviticus 8 through 10, we have we are introduced to the priesthood. And priests are called to represent the people before God, to act as God's mouthpiece, and to exemplify life in God's presence. And you might remember the command given to Aaron in Leviticus 10, 10 through 11, which says, You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. And so Leviticus 11 through 15 are the laws that the, that the priests are supposed to teach to the Israelites. And they are outlining specifically the ritual states of clean and unclean and holy. And a ritual state is something that might be a little weird to us. We don't typically think in that way. But a ritual state is a condition of a person, place, or thing that determines what actions one can engage in, specifically regard, with regard to the community living in the presence of the Lord. Maybe the best example of this I can think of is being sick. People who are sick are under the condition of being sick, and it's not wrong to be sick, but you probably shouldn't go out and hang out with a bunch of people when you're sick. Otherwise, you're going to spread your illness. And since these ritual states have to do with being in proximity to the Lord, who dwells amongst his people in the tabernacle, we might think of the clean and unclean laws in Leviticus 11-15 through 15 as house rules, that need to be followed out of respect for the Lord and his dwelling place. Imagine that you received an invitation to Travis Kelsey's mansion for dinner with him and Taylor Swift. You get ready, you drive to Kansas City, you walk up to the door, and you find two bodyguards and this poster. This poster says, Thou shalt not enter if you are unclean. And list out stipulations. You are unclean if you have rooted for any other NFL team other than the Kansas City Chiefs. Those who root for the Denver Broncos, the Las Vegas Raiders, or the Dallas Cowboys are especially detestable. You are unclean if you have any symptoms of illness. You are unclean if you have any blemishes on your skin. You are unclean if you have had Taco Bell in the last 24 hours. You are unclean if you have not showered or applied deodorant. You are unclean if you are not dressed appropriately for a meeting with such people as Travis and Taylor. And the bodyguards, acting as priests in the situation, would then proceed to question, examine, and sniff you to ensure that you are clean and fit to enter. If you are not, you are going to be postponing your visit until you are fit to enter. And when you come back, you must pay a purification fee. 
And so if we look at the house rules here, they're designed to enforce respect for Travis and Taylor in, in the place that they are at. And in many ways here, the laws of Leviticus 11 through 15 operate similarly. And specifically, we see that God requires holiness and wholeness for those who seek to come before him. This morning, we're going to read three selections from Leviticus 11 through 15. The goal is to give you a little bit of a flavor of what these chapters are like. Um, first, I'm going to read Leviticus 11, 41 through 45. Every swarming thing that swarms on the ground is detestable. It shall not be eaten. Whatever goes on its belly and whatever goes on all fours or whatever has many feet, any swarming thing that swarms on the ground, you shall not eat, for they are detestable. You shall not make for yourselves make yourself detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. And next we're going to read Leviticus 13, 40-46. Sorry if you were balding. This is a sad passage. If a man's hair falls out from his head, he is bald. He is clean. And if a man's hair falls out from his forehead, his ba- he has baldness in the forehead. He is clean. But if there is on the bald head or the bald forehead a reddish-white diseased area, it is a leprous disease breaking out on his bald head or his bald forehead. Then the priest shall examine him. And if the disease swelling is reddish-white or is on his bald head or on his bald forehead, like the appearance of leprous disease in the skin of the body, he is a leprous man. He is unclean. The priest must pronounce him unclean. His disease is on his head. The leprous person who has the disease shall wear torn clothes and let the hair of his head hang loose. And he shall cover his upper lip and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean as long as he has the disease. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. And third, I'm going to read Leviticus 15:31 through 33 Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. This is the law for him who has a discharge and for him who has an emission of semen, becoming unclean thereby. Also for her who is unwell with her menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge and for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. The grass withers, the flower fades. Let's pray. O God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have covenanted with your people, promising to be our God, to be present among us and to give us life. As we approach your word this morning, remind us of this, and grow our love for you as we learn your commandments and seek to follow them out of love for you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So as we proceed, I'm going to do two things. First, I'm going to give you a crash course of the laws in Leviticus 11-15, through 15, so we know what's there. And then we're going to discern what we, are, what, we are, what we are to do with these difficult chapters under three specific headings. God requires holiness, God requires wholeness, and God provides purification. So God requires holiness, requires wholeness, and provides purification. So starting with Leviticus 11, we have food laws. And one thing worth noting at the outset here is that many of these laws, or the animals that are mentioned here, are just exceedingly difficult to translate from the Hebrew. So what you have in your Bibles today is really an educated guess. Um, but first we start with animals that walk on the earth. And the basic requirement for what is, what is a clean animal that walks on the earth is in Leviticus 11.3. Whatever parts the hoof and is cloven-footed and chews the cut among the animals, you may eat. 
Then there are examples in cases given, such as the camel, which chews the cud but does not part the hoof, though therefore is unclean. Then Leviticus 11 moves on to cover animals that are in the water. And in order for one of these animals to be clean, it must have fins or scales. Fins and scales. So no eels, no slimy things. Probably a good idea. Then Leviticus covers things that are in the air, primarily birds and flying insects. And the pattern for birds would seem to be that those that are birds of prey are not clean. And insects that are hopped that are clean. So grasshoppers, crickets, and locusts, they're all good. Too bad the potluck and the men's breakfast have passed. Should have had a good meal. And then Leviticus 11 moves on to mention that contact with dead things makes one, makes one unclean. And anything that touches a dead thing will need to be washed or destroyed, depending on what it is. Moving on to Leviticus 12. Uh, it covers childbirth and instructions for purification after childbirth, which makes the mother unclean for seven days, and then another 33 days if she has a boy, and 14 days and 66 days if she has a girl. Then there are specific sacrifices to be offered at the end. And you might hear, wait, why is it twice as long if you have a girl? This is particularly odd to us and might give the impression of a negative view of women, but there are a few reasons why that is not the case here in Leviticus. First, given the context of the Pentateuch, um, women are clearly given the status of image bearers in Genesis 1-3. through Second, there is evidence, according to scholars, that Israelites may have mistakenly believed that males had a shorter formation time in the womb than females. Or maybe the circumcision of the male had something to do with their purifying, the purifying effect on the mother. And third, honestly, the Israelites might not, not have even had any idea as to exactly why this was the case. This is another thing you can add to your list of questions you want to ask the Lord when you die. Moving on to Leviticus 13 and 14, we, co we cover what the ESV terms leprosy, um, which is a broad category for what J. Squar, an Old Testament scholar, calls ritually defiling skin disease. So throughout these chapters, there are various criteria and cases offered for both people, things, and dwellings that may have had a ritually defiling skin disease, or become moldy, or had mildew, or some other thing that was just weird. And the process would then usually involve a priest inspecting the skin or item in question, maybe a quarantine period, and then a reevaluation. And for severe impurities, they are forced out of the camp until they are healed, or destroyed if it is an item. And then for minor impurities, usually time and a cleansing ritual is involved. Now we move on to Leviticus 15, which covers bodily discharges, both normal and abnormal. First covered are abnormal discharges from the genitals. The Hebrew word here can refer to flesh or body generally, um, but context favors genitals, so all the more awkward for us. The abnormal discharges are specifically listed for men, but are also applied, might have applied to women as well. And these would have been in connection with infection or disease. Um, so these are highly contagious impurities, so coming in contact with anything that one of these people who is unclean because of a discharge had sat on, touched, they spat on you, you would become unclean. And then we move on to the laws for normal discharge, which would be an emission of semen, either in the context of a nocturnal emission or in sexual intercourse. The result here is a need to bathe and wash clothing and be unclean until the evening. And then finally in Leviticus 15, menstruation is covered. In many ways, this uncleanness is very similar to that of the abnormal discharge for the man. And each of these require the, the, have the list, means of purification listed, 
and it includes washing, waiting, and sacrifice. So, now that we have the lay of the land, how are we to respond faithfully to these difficult chapters of Leviticus? What do we do with this? These things are so foreign. First, we see that the Lord requires holiness for those who dwell in his presence. So what is holiness? Good question. To be holy is to be set apart for a particular person or purpose. For example, the Israelite high priest would wear a headband that said, Holy to the Lord, that he would wear as he enters into the presence of the Lord, signifying that he is wholly set apart for the service of God. Or to maybe think of a, a more modern example, or everyday example, you may have a nice set of clothes or a nice set of dishes that you have set aside for very special occasions. These are holy and set apart. And the food laws, and in reality all of Leviticus 11-15, through 15, serve to demonstrate that the people of Israel are set apart for the Lord. And this kind of makes sense, considering that food really is a main signifier of someone's culture. For example, we have American food, Chinese food, Mexican, Thai food. All of these divide, divide different people groups and demonstrate their differences. And as we read in New the New Testament, specifically with these food laws in mind, they draw the line between Jew and Gentile. And in many ways, the food laws were effective in drawing this line. And even maybe, as we see in Acts 10, with Peter refusing to heed the Lord's call to kill and eat, these were things that were made up into the identity of the Israelites. But the heart of the food laws is not just about food. The Lord pro provides the reasoning behind the food laws in Leviticus 44, 11, 44-45, which says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You, you shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the heartbeat of the food laws, and in many ways all of the clean, unclean laws. The Lord reminds his people that he has redeemed them to be his own possession, and that they are to be truly holy and set apart, reflecting God's holiness. God's holiness means that he is exalted, greater than all, pure, perfect, the source of all life. And we find that anything that is the opposite of that cannot be in the Lord's presence. L. Michael Morales says that the contrast between life and death is at the heart of the clean-unclean laws. Understanding Yahweh to be the fountain of life, the spectrum between life and death may be mapped out spatially, with life in order cosmos at one end and death and chaos at the other. So as you draw near to God, life is required. As you go away, you find more death. So with the people of Israel living with Yahweh just down the street, death has to keep its distance from the camp. And this gives us some insights into reasons behind the food laws that we covered. Eating birds of prey would lead to uncleanness because they've killed and consumed animals, include other animals, including their blood. So they've encountered death. Pigs gladly eat their friends if they get the chance. So they're unclean. But as I said earlier, this isn't ultimately about food. Death and its effects impact all of life. And in fact, the clean and unclean distinction helps the Israelites understand that their actions must be in accord with life. Sin brings death, so therefore the people of Israel are to live clean and morally pure lives before God. So clearly, when living in the presence of the Lord, a holy diet is not sufficient. Holiness must be more than external conformity to some regulations. It must be true of the entirety of their lives and our lives. That can be tough to swallow. 
Because we so often forget that the entirety of our lives are lived before the face of God. We are convinced as a society that we live in this world that is cut off from God, living under this proverbial dome that is oblivious to anything that transcends the material world. We can't see or touch God, so he must not be present because he doesn't feel like it. But the consequences of believing that means that we're stuck in what Charles Taylor calls the imminent frame, and the consequences are manifold. Materialism rules, everything is for our own use, meaning and purpose are no longer defined by a transcendent being, so we are left to make our own life, with no accountability, with no limits, or so we think. Christian, it is too easy for us to believe this lie. Through your faith is in Christ, you are not your own. You do not define what parts of your life are called to be holy, rather you are to be wholly transformed. 1 Peter 1, 14-16 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And we have Leviticus 11 here quoted, but applied to all of your conduct. All of our conduct is to reflect that we are set apart for the, as the Lord's chosen people, whom he has redeemed, whom he dwells amongst. The Lord is present among us. He knows us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our desires. And he knows what we have done. All of it. Does your life reflect the reality that you live before the face of God? Moving on to my second point. God requires wholeness for those who enter before him. Find that sin is not the only manifestation of death in the world. Death can show up as lack or want or decay. And the laws of Leviticus 12-15 highlight this. Childbirth involves the loss of life fluids and bring the mother and baby to the brink of death, especially without modern, modern medical technology. Ritually defiling skin diseases like mold or mildew um, and any other skin disease are external signs of decay, that we are not healthy. And abnormal discharges are unhealthy, preventing the creation of life. The emission of semen is the draining of body of life fluids, so is the bleeding of menstruation. So if one is in this state, they are lacking the wholeness of life. So hopefully you're seeing this idea of wholeness coming out in these laws. And if God is the fountain of life, then his people should reflect that reality, coming before God whole and full of life. And what is interesting here is that these causes of impurity are not morally wrong or sinful. It's not sinful to have sex within the bounds of marriage. It's not sinful to give birth. It's not sinful to have a skin issue, and it's not sinful to be sick. Being unclean would have just been a fact of life, life in a fallen world. The Israelite would have had no way of controlling whether or not they would become unclean. So they would have been able to decide if they wanted to come in contact with those who were unclean, that he wanted to help them. But with these laws in place, the Israelites are called to this constant awareness of their ritual state. This attentiveness and their, to their life would have reminded them that naturally they are unfit to be in the presence of the Lord. They are not naturally whole, and they are not naturally holy. And this reminder would have worked in their minds in, this, in two primary ways. It would have reminded them that they are wholly different than God, and they are dependent on God for access to his presence. And these are things that we so easily lose today. Imagine an Israelite who wakes up one morning with leper skin disease. 
and he is now and gets evaluated by the priest and is sent out of the camp. He has nothing he can do about it. He has to wait until the disease is healed and before he can be reevaluated and then purified and then come back in. He's left in this place of not having power to change the situation. So who does he have to look to? He has to look to the Lord. And often, we tend to think the same thing in different ways. Maybe we feel like we can be everywhere, to do everything, to know, know everything. And we find that we just can't. And this comes to the forefront of our minds, and we can't get an infant to sleep. When we're trying to mend a relationship and it just isn't happening. When we're trying to get somebody to agree with us on topic at work. Or even to help somebody come to Christ. We find that we just can't. We are powerless of our own accord. We need the Lord. We are human. And just as much as we may have an illusion of control over our lives and bodies through technology, modern medicine, whatever it may be, we still have limits. And as we grow in our awareness of our limits and our creatureliness, another theme becomes equally as clear. The willingness of God to come and dwell with us, though we are limited, lacking, and unholy. This is possible because the Lord provides a way of purification for us, using the means and the mediators that he has provided in the sacrificial system and the priesthood. Generally, the path for becoming clean included a mixture of the following, washing with water, wading, excuse me, a cleansing ritual with blood and water being put, out, put on you, and an offering of a sacrifice for major impurities. And with these methods of purification, God's people can become ritually clean, restored from the effects of death and decay. And here's where the connection between the clean and unclean laws and life and death really begins to click. Offering sacrifices and making atonement, even for something that's not morally wrong, communicates that life removes the traces of death. This is the particular work of God, to restore life where there is death and decay. And in these laws, we've seen how easily the unclean state passes from one person to another. It's highly contagious. Think back to the COVID-19 pandemic. The virus spread naturally, infecting and making others ill, but good health does not spread in the same way. But when God enters the picture, life and cleanness become a possibility for the people of God. Dwelling in God's presence requires one to be clean, and God graciously provides the means to accomplish that for Israel through these rites that we have in Leviticus 11-15. through 15. And more than that, we see Jesus come and dwell amongst his people in the Incarnation. And as he walks around ministering to people, he encounters many who are unclean. But something's different with Jesus. He's not subject, he does not become unclean when he is touched by those or touches those who are unclean. Rather, he communicates life. He restores people. So we've been offered a means of purification. What does this mean for us? We've seen that the heart of the clean, unclean laws are a call for holiness, an awareness of our need for God to provide us with life. We've seen God has provided purification rites to cleanse and communicate life. And as I mentioned earlier, the call to holiness extends far beyond the food that we eat. In Mark 7, 18-23, Jesus says, Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. 
For within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And here the call to holiness is extended to every part of our lives. As what we do reveals our true state, what comes out of our heart reveals our true state. So what we really and ultimately need cleansing from is our sin and rebellion against the Lord. It is our hearts that bar us from the presence of the Lord. The human heart is desperately sick, cold, dead, and only capable of loving itself without God. This is not life. The sinful heart is exiled from God's life-giving presence, just like the leper whose disease is not healed, with no way to return on its own. But just as the Lord provided purification rites for lepers who were healed, and in Jesus he healed these lepers, so he has provided a way back into his presence. And for us, the means and the mediator are one, the Lord Jesus Christ, who serves as a great high priest and sacrifice on our behalf. Hebrews 10 speaks of the effects of Christ's sacrifice. But when Christ had offered up for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And notice carefully the wording in verse 14 here. By a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This points us to a glorious truth. In the gospel, we have been given the status of perfection. And to be perfect is to be whole and holy. And this is a status that we have received not by anything that we have done, but by the work of Christ who has given himself for us. And because of this, we can dwell with God. But we also see that we're being sanctified, or being made holy, while we continue to live in a world stained by sin and death. So let's go back to 1 Peter 1, 14-19. I only read part of this earlier. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of lamb without blemish or spot. You see that our becoming holy is not based on our own effort, but our having been ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. We've been given this status as holy ones, and it is from this status that we live out the call to be holy. So if you are here today and you are not sure about Jesus, your need for forgiveness, know this. God is not absent from this world. He judges impartially. He knows your thoughts and intentions. And you will not survive his judgment. No one stands before the Lord on the basis of their own holiness and survives. So your deepest need is not self-improvement, not being good and making yourself into a holy person, but atonement. And that is what is offered to you in the gospel. Jesus has shed his precious blood to make you and I clean that we can enter before the Lord, the fountain of life. So I invite you to receive this good news in faith this morning. You will find that you will have life, 
and not only that, but a calling to make much of the God who has brought you about your redemption. First Peter continues to outline the calling to be holy, explaining what it means to have one's conduct be holy. And Peter describes that those who were purchased by the precious blood of Christ are being built into a spiritual house and to be a royal priesthood. First Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So the call to those of you who have received this glorious good news is the call to pursue holiness based on the perfected status that you've been given by Christ and to proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I ask you, if there's someone in your life that needs to hear this good news this week, I would encourage you to pray about it, pray for them, and share it with them. Let's pray. Father, you are merciful and gracious, and out of love you chose to come and dwell with your people, that we may have life in your presence. You have accomplished this through the incarnation, life, and death of our Lord Jesus Christ. Make our lips overflow with praise. Make us faithful proclaimers of your excellencies. In the name of Jesus, amen.